Well, hello, and welcome to The Jazz Focus. We are a podcast that is dedicated to uh, exploring some of the cobwebby corners of jazz history and jazz recording history. My name is John Clark, and uh, if you've been with us before, welcome back. And if this is your first time, we hope you enjoy this program enough to explore some of the other programs we have loaded on as well. So today, we're going to be talking about a little group from the swing era. Uh, this was called the Biggest Little Band in the Land, and uh, it was a neat group, and neat in the sense of being cool, and also in the sense of being immaculate in its playing. Uh, its playing of the arrangements, its soloing, its presentation, apparently its on-stand deportment and dress and all that. It uh, was a group that played a lot of very high-end venues in New York, in Manhattan, different places, and as well as clubs in uh, on 52nd Street. And this group was led by a bass player named John Kirby. So this is the John Kirby Sextet we're talking about today. So a little bit about John Kirby. He was uh, originally a trombone player. He was born in 1908 in Virginia. He ended up in New York by the time he was in his late teens. He was playing, started playing some trombone and then tuba um, as well with some of the African-American bands around at the time. He was encouraged by several older players, including trombonist Jimmy Harrison, to give up the trombone, uh, ostensibly because there were too many trombone players around, which I guess would make sense. Uh, the need was for tuba players. And of course, at this time in jazz history, the tuba was the primary bass instrument in most bands. String basses, first of all, didn't record very well, but they weren't loud enough. This was before uh, we had amplification in ballrooms, and the style of music that was played through the middle 1920s anyway tended to be more on the two-beat side. By the late 1920s, dancers were asking for more fast tunes, and they wanted things more in four beats, so uh, tuba players started converting to string bass, and that's what John Kirby did. Uh, his first uh, band associations in New York, or high-profile band associations, were with Fletcher Henderson and uh, the Chick Webb Band, and he played tuba in both of those bands, um, initially anyway, and he was considered one of the best tuba players in town, uh, best African-American players, and uh, he could do some very technical things as well as playing bass lines and we can hear those on some of the Henderson recordings from the uh, period that uh, Kirby was involved with it and then with Chick Webb as well. At some point about 1929, 30, 31, he uh, decided that it was in his best business interest to switch to string bass because he could see the handwriting on the wall. The tubas were not going to be used uh, as extensively as they had been in the past just due to the style of the music. And so he started listening to some of the other black uh, bass players at the time. Elman Bro with Duke Ellington's band, and Pops Foster with um, uh, Louis Russell's band. And those were musicians who had been playing tuba and bass, uh, but who had switched over a little bit earlier. And uh, they were really instrumental in developing the idea of 4-4 swing in uh, bands of the time, black bands of the time. So... After he switched to uh, bass full-time, John Kirby was back with Fletcher Henderson for a little while anyway, and then he ended up with the Mills Blue Rhythm Band in 1936. The Mills Blue Rhythm Band was kind of a... Uh, a B band in Harlem. It was run or organized by Irving Mills, the white entrepreneur and publisher who was Duke Ellington's manager for most of the period from the uh, 1928 or so when he went to the Cotton Club up through the middle 1930s. And the Mills Blue Rhythm Band early on was kind of a placeholder for the Ellington Band. Ellington was at the Cotton Club full time and then he started touring more. And when he was on the road, the Mills Blue Rhythm Band would play at the Cotton Club or other venues in New York to kind of 
keep his seat warm and keep it open for when Ellington's band returned. Um, Initially, there were not a lot of well-known soloists, and the band didn't have much of an identity, musical identity, but it was a good band. By the middle 1930s, it started attracting some more interesting jazz musicians like Red Allen and J.C. Higginbottom and people like that. By 1936, when John Kirby joined, it had several players who became charter members of his uh, first really uh, formal sextet. It had Buster Bailey on clarinet, Charlie Shavers on trumpet, uh, Billy Kyle was on piano, and O'Neill Spencer was on drums. And so Kirby, when he got the band leading bug uh, after about a year or so with Mills Blue Rhythm Band, uh, decided to look around for some opportunities in New York on 52nd Street. He ended up uh, playing as a sideman with Frankie Newton's sextet, uh, actually septet, which was playing at the Onyx Club in 1937, thereabouts. And uh, this was not a terribly not well-organized, but over-organized band. It was more of a jam session type of group, and it did all right, but it wasn't terribly popular. So when they were let go, uh, the manager of the Onyx, Joe Hellbach, said uh, to John Kirby, why don't you put together a group, but make it more organized? And that was sort of the, the implication anyway. And Kirby was inspired by a band that was playing on 52nd Street simultaneously that was led by a trombone player named Snub Mosley. And this was a seven or an eight-piece group that was playing transcriptions of classical pieces, things like Rhapsody in Blue, as well as very organized, very elaborate arrangements of dance band tunes and things like that. That band never recorded, so we don't know exactly what it sounded like, but Kirby was impressed enough to decide that it was time to put together a group on his own that could play music like that, and so that was where the first version of the John Kirby Sextet came from. So they started playing at the Onyx Club in about 1937, and uh, started recording right away. Uh, it took a while for their sound to get together. They were actually on half uh, salary from the Onyx and not playing when the, the, the marquee band led by violinist Stuff Smith came back, but that was a good time for them to uh, start rehearsing and developing a book of arrangements that was really unlike anything that was heard in the swing era, whether white or black bands. It was a, a very um, impressive musical group. They were able to play very fast, intricate ensemble passages, uh, unison, harmony, uh, as well as great solos and some very tricky modulations. We'll hear a lot of that coming up. So the band lasted uh, all through the 30s into the 40s. World War II took a bit of a toll. They were actually the first jazz band to have their own radio show. It was called Flow Gently Sweet Afton and it went from uh, the middle part of 1940 to early 1941 and uh, it was sponsored and there are still some broadcasts of that available. That was a, a single honor for uh, a black jazz band of the period and they had some success with their recordings as well. We're going to be focusing on a set of recordings that they did for the Langworth Transcription Company in 1940 and 1941, about the same time they were doing the radio show. Now, if you've listened to this uh, podcast before, you've probably heard some recordings of uh, things that I've taken from various radio transcriptions. These were recordings that were made specifically for radio airplay. They were not designed for commercial use or commercial release. Uh, they were generally recorded a lot better because they were done in radio uh, stations or uh, they were done right onto uh, discs that weren't going to be played very often. So uh, the 
technical quality is very good, and we can often hear things that we can't hear on commercial recordings. Uh, some bands recorded their hits from other um, you know, recording companies, uh, and some bands went in and were given pseudonyms and recorded things that they weren't familiar with. The Kirby Band recorded kind of a mix of their own tunes as well as new arrangements, things that they did not record commercially, and things that featured their singer, Maxine Sullivan, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, Langworth lasted from the late 1930s to the middle 1940s, and they licensed their recordings to various radio stations for use as filler material between programs if there were if was time that needed to be filled for um, broadcast uh, as if there were a live band in the studio, which didn't make the uh, musicians' union very happy, as you can imagine, so there were all kinds of uh, contentious uh, debates about that. But we are fortunate to have a lot of these recordings because, as I said, they're very well uh, processed, well produced. Produced, and you can really hear uh, the parts very well, especially in a group like John Kirby's. So we're going to start with uh, a few tunes, four tunes that uh, feature the ensemble. There are no vocals on here. And these were things, a couple of them anyway, that were recorded commercially. I'm going to start with one that was actually one of the most familiar John Kirby arrangements. It was a Charlie Shavers tune called Front and Center. And uh, this is going to feature all the members of the band. And then we go on to something called 20th Century Closet. These were very whimsical uh, titles, some of them, and some of them had classical allusions, as we're going to hear. This is another Charlie Shavers tune. Then we're going to go to a rumba that was introduced to the American public in about 1930, 31. It came over from Cuba. Um, and this was uh, called The Peanut Vendor in English, and it was a pop tune throughout the 1930s, and this is the John Kirby take on that. Then we're going to finish up our short set with an old pop tune by Eddie Leonard called called Ida, Sweet as Apple Cider, a big hit for Eddie Cantor. So those are our four tunes right now by the John Kirby Sextet. Front and Center, 20th Century Closet, The Peanut Vendor, and Ida, Sweet as Apple Cider. <laughs> Thank you. 
So there's some fantastic playings, uh, not just the jazz solos, which of course we tend to focus on when we're listening to jazz, but the ensemble playing, the arrangements, and uh, how those arrangements were realized, really just fantastic. Each of these musicians in this band were, was really a virtuoso, uh, at least in the front line, um, really some remarkable things. So the four tunes that we heard were Charlie Shaver's Front and Center, which he uh, arranged, as well as 20th Century Closet, the second tune, another arrangement and composition by Charlie Shavers. We went to the Peanut Vendor, that uh, rumba I mentioned, which featured some excellent piano playing we'll talk about in a minute. And we finished up with Ida, Sweet as Apple Cider, which was composed in 1903 by Eddie Leonard, but was used later on by Eddie Cantor uh, as a sort of a theme song that uh, uh, was a tribute to his wife, Ida Cantor. Also, I should point out that most of the arranging, at least as far as I know, uh, was done by Charlie Shavers, the trumpet player. Billy Kyle, uh, the piano player, did a few of them, uh, but Charlie Shavers was, was really the kind of the architect of the band sound in a lot of ways. And most interesting to me is the fact that when he joined the band, he was only 17. Uh, he was born in 1920, uh, and he had told uh, biographers later on that he was born in 1917 and apparently that was to avoid child labor laws if you believe that uh, and it could be I suppose but he was certainly precocious even if he were uh, 20 instead of 17 but still in all. He had played with uh, Tiny Bradshaw's band uh, in the middle 1930s when he was presumably about 15 or 16 before going with the Mills Blue Rhythm Band. He had done some arrangements for them as well, so clearly he was, uh, he, he, he was up on things, as they said. Uh, later on in his career, uh, after he left the Kirby Band, and he was with them up until the mid-40s, he went with uh, the Jazz at the Philharmonic concerts that Norman Granz ran. Uh, he was a, a fan favorite of that because he was a very flashy player. He had an amazing technique and range. Uh, he played with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra for about 10 years, uh, playing and singing as well. He played with Benny Goodman briefly and uh, led some of his own combos. He ended up uh, passing away in 1971, almost exactly the same time that Louis Armstrong did, and uh, Charlie Shavers was an avowed fan of Louis Armstrong. Even though his playing didn't sound terribly like Louis Armstrong's, uh, you, can, you can tell that he gets the range and, the, and the, the, the swagger from especially the early Armstrong recordings. So also in the band we had Buster Bailey, who was a fine clarinet player, fine technical clarinet player, whose career had gone back to uh, the very earliest days of jazz. He was born in 1902 in Memphis. Uh, he had played with uh, the W.C. Handy Band uh, that uh, was touring around, I think, in the Midwest and made some recordings as well once they came to Chicago. He was in Chicago by the early 1920s. He was playing with Erskine Tate's big band, a theater band that was playing overtures and lots of... Uh, classical uh, music and so forth, as well as jazz. And then he went with King Oliver's band. After King Oliver's Creole jazz band that had featured Johnny Dodds and Louis Armstrong broke up in the fall of 1924, um, he uh, Oliver reformed it and brought in a couple of different reed players, including Buster Bailey, and he was with him for a year or two before Louis Armstrong had called him to come to New York to join him in the Fletcher Henderson band in 
the fall, uh, or in, I think actually in January of 1925. And so uh, Bailey was in New York from that period, and he was the first call clarinet player uh, for African-American bands through uh, the 1940s. He was a, a very, very accomplished player in terms of his improvising and especially his uh, musicality, his reading and so forth. He had studied with the same clarinet teacher that Benny Goodman did in Chicago in the 1920s, Franz Schirp, and uh, he was considered one of the uh, finest of the African-American musicians of the period. In fact, he probably would have been a classical musician if that avenue had been open to him at the time. Uh, after uh, Fletcher Henderson's band, he was with him for several years. He went with Noble Sissel's band, made some films with him, uh, went back with Fletcher Henderson's band a couple of times, and then ended up with the Mills Blue Rhythm Band, as I said, at the time when John Kirby was there. Uh, a little bit later, uh, he, uh, well, he actually stayed with the John Kirby band from 1937 till about 1946. I think he was the only player who stayed with Kirby pretty much the whole time. He was too old to be drafted into World War II, so he was able to stick around New York and that was a band that did not tour a great deal and that I think was important to Bailey. He uh, tended to leave bands once they started touring a lot because he liked to stay around New York and he had plenty of work there. Uh, in the 1950s he worked uh, extensively with Red Allen uh, in some of the sort of touristy Dixieland bands at the Club Metropole and other places. Uh, he recorded very frequently during that period and he spent the last few years of his life touring with the Louis Armstrong All-Stars. Uh, he actually passed away after two years with them in 1967. Also with the Louis Armstrong All-Stars at about the same time uh, was Billy Kyle on piano. Now Billy Kyle was a remarkable piano player by any standards. He was a very forward-looking pianist harmonically uh, and his solos, he recorded a few solo recordings, not enough though, but a few to show us that he was really a, quite an advanced stylist in the 1930s and into the 40s as well. He was, uh, as with Charlie Shavers, with uh, Tiny Bradshaw's band and then with the Mills Blue Rhythm Band before joining the Kirby Band and uh, really being kind of the linchpin of that uh, sextet. After he left uh, uh, going into the uh, service in World War II, the band was never really quite the same after that. Uh, he did come back briefly after the war, but the band never really got going again. And Kyle went into the studios and uh, played with a number of jazz groups as well as small groups in the 1950s uh, before joining the Louis Armstrong All-Stars in 1955, and he stayed with them for about 11 years. Actually, it was uh, earlier than that. I think it was about 1953 he joined the All-Stars. He was with them for 13 years and was a, a key member of that group for that whole period. And we can hear him soloing. The tunes that we just heard featured him quite extensively, uh, especially the Peanut Vendor, which was the third tune we heard, that rumba, which then went into this kind of boogie-woogie feel, which uh, was not something that Billy Kyle did a great deal, but he certainly did it well there. We also had Russell Prokope on alto saxophone. Prokope was an older musician as well. He was born in 1908. Uh, in the 19, late 1920s, anyway, he recorded with Jelly Roll Morton. He ended up going with Chick Webb's band and with Fletcher Henderson's band. Uh, he briefly played with Benny Carter's band. He was a... a, a, a a follower of Benny Carter in terms of the way he played. He thought uh, of Carter very highly and was happy to play with his group. He played with Teddy Hill's band in the middle 1930s before joining the Kirby band in 1937 and staying with him until he left for World War II in 1942. After he came back from the service in 1946, he joined Duke Ellington's band and stayed with him until Ellington died in 1974. Uh, 28 years playing saxophone with that group and he also became known as a uh, 
a very inventive clarinet player at the time. Uh, he did not play clarinet at all with the Kirby band. He was strictly on alto saxophone. But his reading abilities and his abilities as an almost classical saxophone player in some ways really set the sound of the ensemble of this group as well. O'Neill Spencer was the drummer of this group, and he was probably the least technically adept. He was not a, a particularly fine jazz drummer, but he was a tasty drummer, and he could uh, play these arrangements very well. He was not known as a uh, drummer of the you know, caliber of someone like Cozy Cole or Big Sid Catlett, but he was perfect for this group, and he also provided vocals. We're not going to hear any today, but he was a, uh, a very... Um, strong drummer for this style of playing. He played, again, with the New Mills Blue Rhythm Band and also with the Frankie Newton Group. He died in 1944 of tuberculosis and also apparently he had some um, emotional problems as well. And uh, he was replaced by several drummers, including Sid Catlett, that never quite captured the same spirit. So, we're going to hear now the same band uh, going on, uh, featuring the star vocalist, and probably the, the, the person who put it, this group over commercially more than any other, Maxine Sullivan, a very fine singer who at the time was married to John Kirby. She married him in 1938, and they stayed married until 1941, which is about when these recordings were made. Uh, she had had a hit recording in 1936-37 of Loch Lomond, the Scottish song. She recorded with a combo uh, led by Claude Thornhill, the white piano player, and she had uh, some celebrity on 52nd Street because of that recording. She also, in 1939, was featured uh, with the Kirby Band, as well as uh, the Benny Goodman Sextet, briefly the Count Basie Band and the Bud Freeman Summa Cum Laude Band in a Broadway show called Swing in the Dream, which was a jazz version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and she played Titania in that uh, production, Louis Armstrong played Bottom. So that was a, a, a performance or a production that had hit written all over it, and it lasted for about a week and a half before it was canceled. So that was probably a little bit ahead of its time. But she was uh, popular enough in 1939 to have been given that starring vehicle, which tells you a little bit about how uh, popular her recordings were. So I picked four recordings from these Langworth transcriptions that are uh, kind of unusual. They're uh, strange in the sense that they're not standard recordings. This was at a period when ASCAP, uh, the American Society of Composers and Performers, had uh, tried to raise the rates uh, on their songs, and that most of the pop songs of the 1930s were published by ASCAP, and they wanted more money, basically, for radio play, and the radio stations banded together and said, no, you don't, and they took all ASCAP songs off the air, so bands that were performing on the radio, such as John Kirby's band, were forced to use non-ASCAP songs, some new songs that were coming out, as well as public domain songs like Stephen Foster songs and Kirby used uh, classical tunes as well as some very unusual uh, material from uh, Maxine Sullivan to sing as you will hear in this uh, particular set that we're going to do right now. The first song we're going to hear is If I Had a Ribbon Bow, which was composed by Lou Singer, who was someone who composed and did some arrangements for the Kirby Band at the time. Very unusual pop song. Then we hear There I Go, which was a song that was made more famous by Vaughn Monroe a little bit later by Irving Weiser and High Zarat. I don't know if this was an ASCAP song or if this was a new song that was published uh, by BMI, uh, which was a... a, a an alternative to ASCAP for these uh, um, radio broadcasts. They had originally done more hillbilly music and country music and blues, but they started branching out into Tin Pan Alley as soon as the troubles with ASCAP began. 
At that point, we're going to go to a tune called As the Tide Was Flowing In, a traditional tune that was arranged by John Kirby. Um, the last tune we're going to play in this set was the last, is The Last with the Delicate Air, which is uh, apparently another John uh, Kirby arrangement of a traditional tune that's credited to Thomas Arne, who was a British composer from the 1700s. He was a, a, a musical theater composer from that period. So you have a very eclectic repertoire happening there. So those are our four tunes. If I had a ribbon bow, there I go, as the tide came flowing in, and The Last with the Delicate Air. If I had a ribbon bow to tie my hair And a gown of calico that I could wear I'd surely get a sweetheart, a prince or a king A palace home where I would have everything If I had a ribbon bow to tie my hair This old world could come and go, I wouldn't care I'd stay up in my castle And I'd always wear A ribbon bow so fine To tie my hair All the live long day To the Lord above me All I do is pray For someone to love me If I had a ribbon bow I could be a princess or a fairy queen Prince Charming then would court me His love he would swear If I had a ribbon bow to tie my hair There's a story of a girl A story seldom told what she wanted from this world was not of gems or gold Her wishes were quite plain as you will see For often she would simply make this plea All the live long day To the Lord above me All I do is pray For someone If I had a ribbon bow all nice and clean I could be a princess or a fairy queen Prince Charming then would court me His love he would swear If I had a ribbon bow A pretty little ribbon bow Prince Charming then would court me His love he would swear If I had a ribbon bow to tie there I go, pleading with my heart again, and there I go, acting not so smart again, although it's unwise. I can't disguise my love 
such love may curb the fire There I go Led astray by my desire There's no golden rule To guide a fool in love I tell my heart Be careful Or you'll find that you dream alone I'm wise, it's true What good does it do? My heart has a mind of its own So there I go Spilling all the dreams I knew And there I go So thrillingly in love with you Don't know if you care Darling, but there I go By my desire, there's no golden rule to guide a fool in love. I tell my heart, be careful, or you'll find that you dream alone. I'm wise, it's true. What good does it do? My heart has a mind of its own, so there I go. All the dreams I knew And there I go So thrillingly in love with you Don't know if you care Darling, but there I go So thrillingly in love with you Walk and walk to talk and talk down by the rolling river. 
said, but on their way they strolled along together. The small birds sang and the lambs did play, and pleasant was the weather. When they were weary, they sat down beneath the tree with branches round. For his true love at last he found, just as the tide was flowing. So those were not tunes you were hearing the big bands playing in 1940 or 41 for the most part. Uh, some very clever arrangements of some very interesting songs. Very subtle, very sophisticated, but not corny. Um, the band that uh, the Kirby Band is sometimes lumped with because it's the only other band that did anything even remotely like it was the Raymond Scott uh, Sextet, which uh, was a white group that played a lot of novelty things. Powerhouse was their big hit, uh, a lot of cartoon music type of things. And they had a similar uh, outlook on very highly arranged, very carefully played, uh, immaculately played things with some solos, but their music was more on the comedy side in some ways, or, or, or more of the novelty side. Uh, the John Kirby Band was definitely playing jazz and dance music, but doing it at a very high level, and uh, music that was not being performed. And uh, they, they spawned very few imitators in their career, because frankly, this stuff was very hard. Um, you can hear a little bit of the, the pre-echoes of bebop and some of the very intricate melody lines and, and unison parts, as well as some chord substitutions and things like that. Some of their arrangements that they recorded commercially, like, for example, Sweet Georgia Brown has been cited as a, a precursor to bebop. So take a listen to that if you get a chance. Maxine Sullivan was one of the most uh, 
subtle vocalists, white or black, singing at the time. Uh, she uh, really was a, almost a cabaret singer in a way, but she was definitely a jazz singer as well. Uh, she had a, a second act to her career. She had retired in the 1950s, late 1950s into the middle 1960s to raise her daughter. Uh, she and John Kirby had gotten divorced in about 1941. She had um, remarried, actually, a couple of husbands down the line. She married the stride pianist Cliff Jackson, who uh, had led a band in the early 30s, and he accompanied her and toured with her until he died in 1970. And then following that, she went out on her own and started uh, making recordings for Concord, as well as some other uh, jazz labels, and doing some fairly high-profile jazz gigs in America and in Europe with some excellent younger jazz musicians. And um, she uh, kept very active up until she passed away in 1987. So her recordings are definitely worth listening to, as uh, you probably get a taste of from those four tunes. If I Had a Ribbon Bow, There I Go, As the Tide Came Rolling In, which was an English folk song, and then The Last with the Delicate Air. So for our third and final set of the John Kirby Sextet, I decided to focus on some of the tunes that uh, they recorded for Langworth that were classical uh, pastiches or transcriptions, as you might uh, like to say. Uh, these were tunes that sometimes Kirby was criticized for. Uh, again, they were public domain because they were classical, so they weren't susceptible to that ASCAP strike. But uh, some people felt that these were disrespectful to the classics or some jazz um, uh, fans thought they were just too cute or too facile or whatever. But they are still marvelous arrangements uh, boiled down to two and a half to three minutes, which was the uh, recording length at the time, and feature some excellent jazz solos as well as the wonderful arrangements and the playing of the arrangements that we just talked about. So we're going to begin with a recording of The Bounce of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which the Kirby Band had done commercially, but this uh, is, is an especially good recording of this with uh, very high-quality recording uh, techniques, as we've been talking about. This was uh, the Tchaikovsky uh, piece done for the Nutcracker Suite, and this was arranged by John Kirby himself. From that point, we're going to go on to a little pastiche of Haydn themes, Joseph Haydn, uh, done by... Charlie Shavers, entitled Haydn Gets Hep. After that, we are going to hear an arrangement of the Valse, Opus 64 by Frederick Chopin, and that was um, arranged by Billy Kyle, as you might expect the piano player to do. And then we're going to end up with something a little bit different. This is the revolutionary etude of Chopin, arranged by Charlie Shavers. So, this is a way that uh, we can get away with, as they called it, swing in the classics, still maintaining a jazz focus. These could be danced too, as I'm sure they were. And uh, they occupied a really niche market in, in the uh, uh, world of big band and swing jazz of the late 1930s and early 40s. So those are our four tunes that we're going to hear right now. The Bounce of the Sugar Plum Fairy, Haydn Gets Hep, Valse, and The Revolutionary Etude. Mm-hmm. 
have it the john kirby sextet from 1940 and 41 the langworth transcriptions those were some very very interesting cool arrangements uh the original cool jazz group we can call them i suppose we started out with the bounce of the sugar plum fairy Haydn gets hep 
the Chopin uh, Valse, Opus 64, and Revolutionary Etude, also by Chopin. And jazz arrangements of those, band, dance band arrangements, but not in the corny sense, I don't think. They're, they're adaptations and, and developments more than anything else. So that was what the John Kirby Band brought to the table. After uh, World War II started and a couple of the members... Um, Russell Prokop and um, Billy Kyle especially were drafted, and then O'Neill Spencer passed away. The band never really could get together again, although they had some great subs. As I said, Sid Catlett was in there, Dizzy Gillespie, Ben Webster, uh, Hilton Jefferson. A lot of very fine players came in to, to fill in, but it wasn't quite the same. The personal dynamic had to uh, be right, and apparently the uh, original six members of this band had a very close personal connection, and you could tell from the way they played these arrangements. So thank you for listening to us today. You've been listening to The Jazz Focus, and we hope you're enjoying these programs. Hope you continue to enjoy them. If you'd like to be a sponsor, please uh, hit that little button that says Sponsorship on wherever you are, whether it's uh, Anchor.fm or Spotify or one of the other fine platforms that carries this podcast. And uh, Feel free to shoot me an email. Go on Instagram or Facebook. My band name is The Wolverine Jazz Band. Take a look at that. Send me an email through one of those... Uh, uh, platforms and uh, let me know if there are any programs you'd like to have considered for the future so once more we are the jazz focus my name is john clark and we'll see you on the other side